Hello and welcome. My name is Emily Stefke, and you're listening to Nature's Narrative. Picture this. You've been hiking up the side of a mountain, carrying a heavy pack two, three thousand feet up. You're sweaty, you're tired, but suddenly you come out of the tree line, and from your vantage point at the top of the peak, you look out on a grand scene of wide open sky and peaks in the distance. It's gorgeous. So what do you do? You immediately pull out your phone or your camera and start snapping photos. You capture the panorama from different angles. Maybe you snap a selfie. Maybe if you're lucky, there's someone else up there with you to take a picture of you against the epic backdrop. But why? Why do we do this? Why is it that when we venture out into nature, we place so much emphasis on taking pictures? What do we actually get out of it? Today's episode of Nature's Narrative takes a closer look into photo tourism, heading into the outdoors and capturing our experience in and of that place through photography. We'll dive into some of the ideas of the famous landscape photographer Ansel Adams, as well as French cultural theorist Jean Baudrillard, and look at how social media platforms like Instagram are redefining the ways in which we interact with the outdoors. I want to make an honest admittance from the outset. I'm totally guilty of phototourism. Not in the sense that I go into the outdoors just to take pictures, but in the sense that when I do find myself in a beautiful place, it's hard for me to resist pulling out my phone and taking pictures. If you were to look at my Instagram, you'd see that nearly all my photos are of me and my friends hiking, rock climbing, or generally interacting with each other outside. I'm not especially social media savvy, but when I finally caved in and started my Instagram profile a couple of years ago, I knew the basic concept. Instagram was that place to craft that perfect persona you want everybody to see when they stalk you on social media. And that's what I've done. I've created a profile that says, I'm adventurous, I'm outdoorsy, and I do a lot of big smiling with my eyes all squinted closed. Looking at my profile, I'm realizing that the amount of mountains in my pictures are wholly disproportionate to the amount of mountains in my real life. While a quarter of my photos on Instagram have a mountain or canyon backdrop, I've definitely spent less than 1% of my life in these spaces. The life of Instagram Emily filters out all the prosaic, not-so-glamorous facets of real Emily's life as a college student, and showcases the highlights I wish were my full-time. And I'll admit, it feels nice to be able to control the perception people get of me through the internet, but in reality, I've created a misrepresentation of my time. But enough about just me. We're here to talk about phototourism, And Instagram is flooded with it. Photos of incredible landscapes by amateurs and professionals, with and without human subjects in the foreground. It's usually impressive, grandiose, but then again, we also only look at it usually for a second and a half, then scroll on to the next thing. The image lives fleetingly in our attention, but forever on the internet. Nowadays, everyone's talking about how smartphones and social media have hijacked our brain circuitry to reduce our attention spans. So how does that affect our interactions with the natural world? One of the things that inspired me to do this episode was when a friend told me that the average amount of time a person spends at the Grand Canyon is seven minutes. I couldn't believe it. 
Turns out the actual statistic is 17 minutes looking at the canyon, but still, it seems ridiculous. Though I haven't been to the Grand Canyon, I've been to other popular tourist destinations, and I guess I get it. I've totally witnessed the phenomenon of come, snap some pictures, spend some time at the gift shop, and leave. That's not exactly my style. I tend to be a lot more active in the places I visit, hiking for hours at a time, camping overnight, rock climbing all day, that sort of thing. But like I said before, I'm totally prone to spending more time trying to get a good picture of the sunset than actually looking at it without the lens. And the thing is, I'm almost hyper aware of it. My partner Tommy's always quick to call me out on getting distracted from the actual experience of whatever I'm witnessing or whoever I'm with. I don't want to be like those other tourists. So when I pull up my phone, I always feel conflicted. Should I just revel in the moment or document everything for posterity, for Instagram, for photographs to hang up in my room to show my friends, to prove I was there? And that how I look in this kind of setting is the person I truly am. Is it possible to simultaneously take photographs and live in the experience without becoming distracted or disengaged? In a lot of ways, it's incredibly sad. The outdoors is supposed to serve as that place away from the business and schedules and pressures of time, an anecdote to temporality and modernity. And when we finally take that time away... We have this strong urge to preserve it, to mark it in time, to memorialize it by taking a picture. But then, what happens to those pictures? For some, the pictures end up stuck on a hard drive or roll of film, never or hardly viewed. Others spend more time engaging with the photographs than the actual landscape in front of them. But once a picture is posted, it achieves an empty state of timelessness to live forever on the internet, viewed by most in a one-second bite of fleeting attention. I want to think more fully about the purpose of taking pictures as an environmental tourist. Does it help us to engage more fully with our surroundings to create this image of reality? Or are we trying to create a reality of ourselves, of the landscape we're within, out of these images? Is it driven by the narcissism of social media? The need for documentation? Maybe it's our way of preserving the fleeting moments we have in a particular space. Or maybe it's a fear that the landscape we see in front of us is running out of time and will never be the same. I started dabbling in film photography a couple of summers ago. I was out on the Oregon coast camping for a weekend with a wonderfully hodgepodge group of friends. One guy, Dan, had a couple of super old-school cameras that he was more than happy to let me play around with as we explored the area. He explained the basic mechanisms, how to approximate proper aperture and exposure, then let me burn through some rolls of film. It was a beautiful day of leisurely exploration, wandering further and further back in and along a river that fed into the Pacific. I'm normally a pretty fast hiker, not that I don't enjoy the journey, but often I'm all about the accomplishment of physical exertion, and it can take precedent over a lot of stopping and pondering. But this was a more contemplative experience. I'd stop and shoot pictures of my friends, fly fishing or walking, posed or unposed, pictures of my shadow in the river and of the river itself. 
When Dan sent me a picture of the negatives afterward, almost all of them were blurry or under or overexposed. But they had an exciting, artistic, nostalgic quality to them that I really liked. It was a lot more satisfying to look at those pictures than digging through 17 pictures you took of the same thing on your iPhone. There's something about the blurriness that leaves room open for filling in the blanks. It's like memory. Some parts are over bright and some parts are too dark, but maybe the best and most beautiful parts are those you get to fill in with your imagination. Dan originally got into film photography in high school when he took an intro class to quote, get out of taking a real class. And he had a pretty great teacher who kind of did the same thing he did for me, gave him some equipment and free reign to explore the medium. I decided to call him up and talk to him for the episode. Here's Dan. So he just handed me this chunky metal camera and briefly told me how to use it. He teaches the class by starting off with just film photography um, because film cameras are incredibly basic and intuitive. Um, you have the three variables, your shutter speed, your aperture, and your ISO, and they're all in front of you. That's all you need to know to take good pictures. And because it was so simple, it allowed me to focus on those other things, you know, the narrative of the picture. And I just kind of tooled around with this camera. Um, it's called, you know, in photography, say you, you, you're seeing through glass. And um, he always told me this quote, he's like, you'll see truth through glass. Um, and I like thinking through photos um, for a lot of reasons, but um, the most important one to me is photos are a lot they are objectively not like there people think they're an accurate representation of what you're seeing and they're not. So you can take a picture of you jumping in the air and no one's actually going to know, did he jump up from the ground? Is he falling or anything like that? They just can see you floating in the air. So there's this like, <laughs> that's why Winogrand is a lot. He's a very quirky guy. Argued photos are a lie. They're illustrations. Um, mm. And that stuck with me because I like this concept of like, I don't know, I was controlling what the viewers saw, right? It's, you know, it's like when you're writing an English essay and you're kind of conveniently leaving out some of the quotes, some parts of the quotes. So that's what got me into it. And then um, also those cameras are tanks and it's heavy, it's hefty, it's got, it won't break. And that lets you to go out there and take good pictures because you're not afraid to put yourself out there. You know, you don't have this $2,000 piece of equipment in your hands that you're like, oh my God, I might break it. So then you're willing to take mm -hmm. these risks. Um, it now occupies this niche where I could, I felt like I could go trash these cameras if it needed to, to take what I perceived as good pictures. When Dan and I crossed paths back in Michigan a few months later, he gifted me with my own film camera, an old ProMaster 2500. Since then, I've been shooting in film occasionally. Like Dan, I've mostly used it outdoors, feeling like I can take the risk of getting sand in the lens and that it's up to withstand most adventures. While I was working for Cottonwood Gulch last summer as a backpacking guide, there were some pretty specific rules about taking pictures. No one, including staff, was allowed to take photos on their phones. As an unplugged program, they wanted to give the kids as much of a technology cleanse as possible, and didn't want them to get triggered by even seeing a phone. A couple brought digital cameras, though, and most bought disposables. It was kind of hilarious to watch them try to take selfies without their front-facing screens. But yeah, they totally tried. I, for one, had my old ProMaster and plenty of rolls of film. I figured the girls would be really interested in learning more about how an old camera works and would want to try it out. I even printed out information about the mechanisms and basic techniques to share with them, but none of them really showed any interest. 
In a lot of ways, I think that photography lost some of its luster for them without the immediacy, without the ability to see a photo right after it's taken. In the desert, when you haven't showered for a week, it's mostly a blessing in disguise. Instead of being able to quickly snap hundreds of pictures of the same thing, they were forced to make careful decisions about how to spend each of their 35 images. Although, most of them were about as good as rationing their photos as they were at rationing their spending money. That is to say, they were mostly gone within the first week. I think, however, the issues and questions I have surrounding photo tourism warrant more than just an exploration through the lens of amateur photographers like myself. Instead, we'll see what Ansel Adams, one of the most famous photographers of the American West, has to say about the matter. Adams worked as a landscape photographer from his beginnings in the 1920s until his death in 84. While he did a lot of commercial work early in his career, most of his best-known works are of mountains, canyons, bodies of water, and other impressive western landscapes. He's been criticized for photographing people like their rocks and rocks like their people. Ansel Adams helped to define photography as an art form in the early 20th century. He founded Group F64, a society dedicated to sharply focused images that have no appearance of being manipulated. The artistry of the photographs came in being able to utilize the full range of tones available in black and white film photography to create what he called equivalence, emotional statements of his feelings, a form of enhanced reality. Aside from being a prominent figure in photographic modern art, Adams was also an avid and ardent letter writer and an active outdoorsman. He served on the board of the Sierra Club for 37 years and became increasingly involved in environmental advocacy toward the end of his life. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1980 by Jimmy Carter, who said in his speech, At one with the power of the American landscape and renowned for the patient skill and timeless beauty of his work, Photographer Ansel Adams has been visionary in his efforts to preserve this country's wild and scenic areas, both on film and on earth. I've poured through hundreds of his letters, looked at hundreds of images, and read pages of books written by and about him to get a better sense of his views on the relationship between photography and the environment. We'll also take a look at some of the writing of the postmodern French philosopher, sociologist, and cultural theorist, Jean Baudrillard. He has lots of ideas about how society engages with objects and landscapes in a consumeristic and hyper-real, superficial sort of way. And though he died before Instagram became a thing, I think a lot of his ideas ring particularly relevant in the wake of our current social media interactions. His travel memoir, America, reflects his thoughts while visiting the U.S. Much of the book narrows in on his perceptions while traveling through southwestern deserts, and he relates those places to ideas about temporality and timelessness, reflecting on what places that seem so vastly void can say about culture. But let's start with Adams. One of the problems with talking about photos in a podcast is that you don't get much of a visual. But if you pull up an Ansel Adams photograph of the Grand Canyon from his 1942 trip, you see patches of deep black shadows demarcating the valleys from which the canyon walls thrust upwards, shaded in grays and lined with near whites. 
Adams was keenly aware that with black and white photography, he only got a hundred degrees of difference between black and white. This means that the darkest areas of a photograph will reflect one one-hundredth of the light of the lightest areas, and part of the artistry in creating his photographs was in figuring out how to set those values in relation to different objects. He pushed back against the idea that his photographs are realistic. Instead, he argues that they are the equivalent of what I saw and felt, expressive representations and interpretations. Making a photograph was a careful process for Adams that involved what he called visualization. It's basically viewing a landscape, creating a mental vision for a photographic interpretation, and trying to see intuitively as the camera sees. For Adams, it's not so much about the subject. His work was about trying to convey a particular feeling, a mood. As he wrote in a letter to his wife Virginia early in his career, he's trying to capture something that echoes, though ever so slightly, the primal song of the wilderness, the whisper of silver winds in the lonely forest, the hollow chant of falling waters. Unlike our smartphone point-and-shoot, creating a photo for Adams was an extremely immersive and time-intensive experience. He writes to his wife, Virginia, I want to know every moment how I can refine and intensify my relation with the world, and every moment make some definite contribution, some crystallization of a perception, some actual golden experience. In letters to his contemporaries in photography in the 1930s, he describes this process as the turning out to the light, the inner folds of the awareness of the spirit, and also as tenderness, which he describes as a sort of elastic appropriation of the essence of things into the essence of yourself, and the giving of yourself to the resultant combination of essences, the soup stirs the cook. In this way, Adam's photographs attempt to portray not just a particular scene, but an emotional human reaction to that scene. But the thing is, Adams is a famous artist for a reason. The things he's able to do with photography are pretty remarkable, not an easy feat for the majority of us. How many times do you look at a picture you took of a sunset and say, it just does not capture it? Even if we were to have the patience to try visualizing the photographic equivalent of our mood in relation to the place we're in, the chances that the photo turns out the way we'd hoped is pretty slim. Instead, most of us have come up with an easier way to add a human reaction. Just put yourself in front of the camera. When we travel, I think it's pretty common to get sucked into a feeling that we need to capture it all. And it's frustrating how inherently impossible that is. Baudrillard's book, America, opens with his realization of this while traveling through the Sierras of New Mexico. He says, Snapshots aren't enough. We'd need the whole film of the trip in real time, including the unbearable heat and the music. We'd have to replay it all from end to end at home in a darkened room, rediscover the magic of the freeways in the distance and the ice-cold alcohol in the desert and the speed and live it all again on video at home in real time 
not simply for the pleasure of remembering, but because the fascination of senseless repetition is already present in the abstraction of the journey. The unfolding of the desert is infinitely close to the timelessness of film. This passage points out not only the excruciating momentary details that would need to be recreated to capture it all, some of which, like heat and music, don't really translate to photography, but it also draws our attention to an interesting phenomenon, that particular, almost peculiar relationship that the desert holds with the concept of time. It is a place carved by harsh erosion of wind and water over millions of years, a place that boasts its steadfastness in time by its stoic, rocky monuments and arches and valleys and cliffs. Writing about his perceptions of Monument Valley and the Grand Canyon, Baudrillard's thinking about the perversity of the millions upon millions of years that created these fantastic scenes, saying, It brings with it an awareness of signs originating, long before man appeared, in a sort of pact of where an erosion struck between the elements. Among this gigantic heap of signs, purely geological in essence, man will have had no significance. Hearing these words about man having no significance today, they take on a particularly eerie quality. Because, of course, we know that mankind is quickly making huge, irreparable scars on the desert's landscapes, slashing natural time courses and creating urgent crises. But more on that later. Ansel Adams was also thinking about the relationship between the desert and time. In a letter to Alfred Stieglitz, one of the early 20th century's foremost modern art critics, Adams expresses his perception of time in the Southwest. He writes, It is all very beautiful and magical here, a quality which cannot be described. You have to live and breathe it, let the sun bake it into you. The skies and the land are so enormous and the details so precise and exquisite that wherever you are, you are isolated in a glowing world between the macro and the micro, where everything is sideways under you and over you, and the clock stopped long ago. He too feels a sense of timelessness in the desert. Yet as Baudrillard alludes to, like us, he still tries to capture this in a moment on film. Perhaps it's because Adams recognizes that capturing it all is too much to ask. He once called the fact that he could make a lifetime of work out of what was within 10 feet of him at any given time very satisfying. Photographs are constrained to a particular frame of view in a particular slice of time. They focus in, forcing the viewer to grapple with vastness and timelessness through patient, careful engagement. In his autobiography, Adams wrote that he prefers black and white photography for capturing the Southwest because its inherent abstraction takes the viewer out of the morass of manifest appearance and encourages inspection of the spares textures, and the qualities of light characteristic of the region. This is what it takes to meaningly portray human interaction with a place that has operated outside of human control for so long. What Adams is trying to capture is the emotional and symbolic implications of our interactions with nature. 
and he sees this as different than what most people do when they point and shoot at a classic location in a national park, what he calls a distinction between capturing an inspired moment on film and the shallow qualities of mere scenery. In an interview he did the year before he died in 83, Adams talked about how falling back on the modern technology that was emerging in film cameras was making people think a whole lot less about what they were doing. I can't imagine what he'd think of our digital culture today. And if our photos aren't exactly emotional equivalents of the natural beauty we encounter on our travels, and the snapshots are insufficient to capture a whole experience of traveling, then what are they? As we progressed through the summer at Cottonwood Gulch, the rules about taking pictures on phones started to loosen up. The kids' phones were still locked away for the summer, but the directors wanted to be able to post some pictures for the kids' parents, and none of us were about to get film developed anytime soon. It was weird to go back to my phone camera, back to taking pictures indiscriminately and in abundance. Worst of all, it was like having a mirror again. We would go weeks without seeing our reflections, but a digital camera changes that. One of the first days we started taking pictures on our phones was at the coral pink sand dunes. I took a group photo of all the girls, and they scrambled around wanting to see it. Immediately, they started insulting themselves, complaining about their greasy hair or goofy smile. All that positive body talk we'd been working on? Forgotten. We quickly implemented a no-looking-at-pictures-on-phones rule. One of the nice things about film is that it hides the photos for a while, but personally, I've found that a while can turn into way too long. I admitted this to Dan. I have yet to develop photos. Like, I have all of these rolls of film, and they sit there. And so it's like, what is the point of me taking these pictures when I never look at them? I think... The, this is another thing that I'm trying to get at the, with this episode is like I think we kind of have this need to like feel like we're recording or capturing something but then like you know what what do you end up doing with your pictures are you pretty good about developing them so I'm actually notorious for not dealing with my pictures I like the act of taking pictures more than actually sorting through them I I, I hate oh my god my roommate when I was my roommate Andrew when I was backpacking with him <laughs> would like take a picture he, he got people back you take a picture and look at it. I was like, dude, what are you gonna do? Change the settings a little more? Like you can I think that's silly. Um, and so I liked how when I would get back, you know, I'd say it was I took pictures on a Monday. I wouldn't have class times maybe Wednesday to develop pictures. And even when you develop them, you can't really look at them until Thursday once the film is dried, and then you can go into the dark room <laughs> and like scan it or and like it takes time. So first of all, I like that because uh, you have your self-doubts about taking good pictures, and you're like, oh, these pictures are kick-ass on this roll, and you are actually got, like, one good picture. Um, so you sit there, and you're yeah. like, you, you kind of balance it like that. But also, I think it made me a better photographer, because I could look at my pictures more objectively, in terms of, like, as an artist, I could be like, that's a bad picture. That might have been a cool moment, but that's a bad picture. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, in the Grand Canyon, we uh, finally got out, um, we're in the airport, we're in the Vegas airport, and my uh, my two friends, Dan and, well, Treadle and Andrew, are, like, whipping out their computers and downloading their files, and I was like, they're, you know, they're sorting through, like, they're tagging, like, they've got, you know, they're taking, like, a thousand pictures, and they're, like, sorting right. each one to flagging the ones they like, and they're, like, 
you know, hey, Dan, where are yours? I want to see yours. I'm like, oh. So, like, I like taking it slow. I think it makes me a better photographer. Oh, my mother is still upset with me. I went on a trip to Norway and I, um, last spring break, and I have still to yet to show her the pictures of it. Um, she just knows I was there. She knew I did some stuff, and she has never seen the pictures. I will, yeah. in my defense, say I did get after the Grand Canyon about a couple, uh, I was probably like three weeks afterwards. I did get a series of photos that I liked. So that was like, that was good for me to get them like three weeks out. And then my roommate over there is pumping them out that night. He's like in Lightroom editing the pictures and stuff like that. Right. If I don't post things right away, I either post them like four months later or just never. Like, yeah. and I took all these great pictures and I'm terrible about printing digital pictures. Obviously, the film just not happening. How many rolls do you have? Probably like close to 20. Wow, you're killing it. Like, I, I know, I, I keep buying more film. So, yeah, I'm kind of terrible. As we speak, all my pictures from the summer are still just sitting on rolls of film. And for me, it's not even like for Dan where I'm worried these photos won't stand up to my artistic standards. It's just that once the moment has passed, developing film isn't really at the top of my priorities list. There are nothing like Adam's artistic landscape photos. In fact, most of mine are of people with landscapes as the backdrop. Dan and I talked about this too, the value of taking pictures of people versus just the landscape. He told me more about his backpacking trip in the Grand Canyon with his friends who are also photographers. They have a different approach to photography, like especially Andrew is very big on landscape photography and taking these epic shots of the mesa and the sunset or things like that. And um, Treadle has a similar approach also. And I personally actually find that style of photography incredibly boring. Um, and Andrew came to realize it when he's, you know, he's looking over his pictures and you can take these beautiful pictures with all the reds and stuff, but they end up looking the same. Um, and as a photographer, I definitely like, I'm more interested in like, human people interacting with it so going into the canyons um i guess in general for myself i was more interested in taking pictures the experiences things like like when i'm you know stripping off i we went to zion afterwards and i'm stripping off like my water boots from the uh doing the narrows and you're like i think that's more interesting as a photographic subject so that's how i like to interact with like i guess nature photography is trying to contextualize my experiences of not like wow, I went up this peak you see here. I'd rather have photos that are telling my story of how I did it. It's funny, you know, the more I think about, like, art, how these places, these heavily photographed places really change your experiences with, like, national parks. And you're like, it almost limits your experience, right? Because the thing you're spending the most time taking a picture of is the thing everyone else has. Instead of, like, trying to develop a unique, you know, repertoire. Or, you know, Relationship or... Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, this conversation left me with more questions than answers. Adam seems capable of fostering a meaningful relationship with the land by taking photos of just that. Dan seems to be capturing intersections between people and the land, telling a sort of story. I don't know if my photos really captured anything because I don't even look at them. So what's the point? Am I just wasting my time? Perhaps unsurprisingly, Dan's not too big of a fan of Ansel Adams. I'll admit, I think some of his pictures are a lot more interesting than others. 
but Adams really does have a talent for capturing the ethereal quality of rocks, like in his photo, Moon Over Half Dome. His photos are what stereotypical landscape snapshots are trying to live up to. The way he was able to harness and balance light is an unquestionable feat of technical genius. Though people aren't in most of his photos, Adams is capturing human moods and reactions to landscapes through presentation of the landscapes themselves. When asked why he doesn't include people in his photos, he responded, There are always two people in every picture, the photographer and the viewer. And it's not that he's opposed to people being among those landscapes. He wrote in a letter, If I feel I have any niche at all in the photographic presentation of America, I think it would be chiefly to show the land and the sky as the settings for human activity. But in themselves, what do his photos leave us with? I feel like it's this idealized representation of a pristine place that maybe isn't what actually exists. Like Dan said, the photos are lies. I think we've established that taking a picture while out in nature doesn't have to be something that removes us from the experience of actually being there. It can also help us focus in on what we're seeing and doing. But is it removal from the experience in the way that we try to make a different reality out of what's actually there? The contemporary author Kathleen Coyne Kelly recently wrote a piece about this phenomenon of idealized ecotourism. She uses the example of Thoreau's Walden Pond, of tourists flocking to this place with the idea of it almost on a pedestal. In reality, it's a place with bathrooms and concrete and screaming children. Many of the nearby areas were clear-cut forest, even in Thoreau's time, and today, Despite the millions of dollars spent trying to restore them, many of the native species are gone. Kelly writes that we want to believe that a given landscape is, quote, untouched and unspoiled by human hands, but this often is what she calls an ahistorical fantasy. Thinking about tourism fantasies and people all taking the same photos of the same things, like at the drive-up rim of the Grand Canyon, reminds me of the most photographed barn in America. If you're not familiar with it, it's actually a fictional place in Don DeLillo's satirical postmodern novel White Noise. Two of the main characters, Murray and Jack, venture to go see it. On the way there, they pass signs advertising this most photographed barn in America. When they get there, there's tour buses and everyone has cameras, and the two of them stand in the distance and comment on the whole spectacle. One of them says, no one sees the barn. Once you've seen the signs about the barn, it becomes impossible to see the barn. We're not here to capture an image, we're here to maintain one. Every photograph reinforces the aura. He raises worthy considerations. As ecotourists, is the value of what is there in reality heightened by or tampered by the photos? Can anyone have a real view of a particular site when it's already been hyped and idealized by our culture? This seems even more complicated when we think about taking pictures for the purpose of posting them on social media. Baudrillard says, Reality we consume in either anticipatory or retrospective mode. I think that our nature photos destined for Instagram are both. 
simultaneously anticipating the tech interface interactions we'll have because of the photo and already looking at the present experience in the retrospect of an image. It's hard to believe Baudrillard never lived to see social media because his ideas about photographic culture ring so true today. He talks about what he calls the frantic self-referentiality of the Polaroid picture, which allows us to hold the object and its image almost simultaneously. He describes Polaroids as a sort of static membrane that has come away from the real object. Now, turn that to digital, to unlimited opportunities to capture ourselves among the landscape just the way we want, and you have Polaroids on steroids. But there does seem to be something different about the experience of being in a place that really does feel like total wilderness. Unlike Walden Pond or a constructed barn, parts of places like Escalante Grand Staircase National Monument still bear no indication of human tampering in places. Baudrillard writes about this in America. As an author who spends most of his time focused on the ways culture surrounds and defines our life, he sees the desert as a sort of antithesis to culture, a stunning fusion of a radical lack of culture and natural beauty. He writes, the inhumanity of our ulterior, asocial, superficial world immediately finds its aesthetic form here, its ecstatic form. For the desert is simply that, an ecstatic critique of culture, an ecstatic form of disappearance. He's saying that the superficiality of our everyday interactions and modes of living are, in some ways, clarified by the desert. This beautiful, impressive place that seems removed from the touches of human culture. He says the desert is a challenge to meaning and profundity with no reference points. We look at the impressive shapes and formations of desert canyons, and instead of pointing back at us, they seem to say, we don't need you. We were created without the tools and constructs of human culture. And that's the idea of the desert. The wilderness of remote areas, like some places in the southwest, not only have they been made without humans, they have been unaltered by humans. They are a monument to enduring time, but in actuality, I think that all depends on where you point your lens. Because if you point it back at yourself, you know you're there. And if you step in front of the camera, you reassociate the landscape with culture and how it plays a role in what we're doing. And if you want to be really realistic, you don't just point your camera at what is all this pure beauty, what might be a misrepresentation. You have to capture all the other things too, the pavement that slashes through the desert, the gas stations, the billboards. Obviously, this isn't what Adams or his group F64 did. They created a reality in which the blemishes of culture were missing. They preserve the idea of the West in all its imagined purity. I talked about this with Dan. You know, it gets to this fundamental question of Ansel Adams, which always get in it, what is landscape photography? You know, Adams was all right. about capturing the environment and its, or the landscape in its pristine condition. Mm-hmm. And then th- there was a response to him called the New Topographics, which was an art movement. Well, it was actually an art show. I want to say in the 70s, so a little bit of time after him, and more of a response to his 
school of thought and like the F64 club. And their approach to landscape photography was to have people in them, to have landscapes of buildings in them. And, you know, it's, it's a collection of artists, so they all have different things they're getting at, but like they wanted to show the degradation to the environment. They could argue that they argued that was part of landscape photography or shit buildings can be part of landscape photography. I think just a good example is of this kind of different, the two different approaches of how you could photograph the same scene is, um, have you ever seen pictures of the pyramids of Giza and how yeah. you take one perspective and it's like desert. You're like, wow, this is Egypt. But then you turn around and there's a, there's a pizza hut next door. Um, I remember, <laughs> so I, I was lucky enough to see those, the pyramids and um, you can see the, you can see like the pyramids right in front of you from the doorstep of a pizza hut. The new type of graphics could be all about like taking the pyramids and then having these commercialism right behind it. They would think that's this right. The new topographics photos aren't beautiful, but they do have a lot to say. After all, time is marching ahead. Adams was capturing something ephemeral, or perhaps something that only exists in our nostalgic imagination. But he was ardent that we needed to do everything we could to preserve what wilderness remains. So finally, I want to turn to the idea of what role Instagram and our eco-touristic photos can play in promoting environmentalism. As I mentioned earlier, Adams was not just an environmental photographer. He was also a leading environmental activist. He's famous for his quote, It is horrifying that we have to fight our own government to save our environment. He never took photos for the purpose of environmental campaigns, but he was pleased that a lot of them got used that way. Back when they were fighting to make Kings Canyon a national park, he went to the debating government officials with a portfolio and said, this is what's at stake. Like Edward Abbey from the last episode, he was a big believer that the National Park Service needed to stay away from overdeveloping parks. In a letter written to Horace Albright, the director of the NPS in 1957, he compared the role of the NPS to that of the National Gallery, saying, I go to the National Gallery to see great paintings. The gallery's function is simple and direct. But I go to Yosemite not because of the attractions of the firefall, dancing, vaudeville and popular music, urban cocktail lounges and food services, hideous curios, slick roads, and a general holiday spirit. Somewhere back of this smokescreen of resortism, the real valley can be seen. He wants to keep those marks of culture, the ones that he doesn't point his lens at, out of the national parks as much as possible. In 1961, he wrote a letter to Wallace Stegner, who was serving as the special assistant to the Secretary of the Interior at the time, saying, The Park Service does not have a clear concept between the terms recreation and recreation. He was angry about the proposed completion of a road through Mammoth Pass. He writes, The proponents say, Why fight this road? It is inevitable. It irritates me to have anyone say that such a thing is inevitable, because I know perfectly well there are other values in this world which are inevitable, too. Adams was keenly aware of the importance of spreading his messages to the public and exciting people to stand by his causes. He did not have much patience for inaction. He wrote to the Sierra Club in 1959, 
I read the resolutions passed at the Wilderness Conference. I am impressed that nothing really new happened, the same good platitudes and expressions of noble purpose, etc. But where are we really touching the people and exciting them? Adams wrote increasingly more political letters later in his life. In a letter for the opinion page in the San Jose Mercury News in 1981, he wrote, I do not intend at the age of 79 to now stand back and observe the destruction of our environment and all that has been accomplished to appropriately preserve and manage the resources of the earth, the physical, recreational, and aesthetic qualities of the world in which we live. He was an ardent opponent of the Reagan administration's environmental policies. As a citizen, I urge each of us to take on responsibility. Write members of Congress, Secretary of the Interior Watt, and President Reagan. Write or phone people you know and urge them to do the same. Impress on everyone you can that this is not just an opinion problem, but the most intense threat we have ever faced to the integrity and future of our land. We can work together with clarity, truth, and dignity to protect our irreplaceable heritage. A letter a day from a million people might keep Watt away. I think that Adams would have been all about social media movements. We may not be writing millions of letters to politicians, but at least we're saying, hey, look, this is a place that's important to me. How valuable that place really is to a person can vary widely, but those near drive-by snapshots of the Grand Canyon, at least they're out there. They're getting on people's minds. People may not be having super genuine interactions with the environment, but at least they're acknowledging that it does something to enhance their lives, even if it is only for 17 minutes and mediated through a Polaroid of hyper-reality. Taking Adams as an example, he seems to be saying that the outdoorsy pictures we post don't have to be taken with promoting preservation in mind to still make a statement. I wonder what sort of pictures really are best for making a statement. Is it the idealized epic shots of Ansel Adams? They're beautiful, but they also don't scream urgency. Maybe the pictures of the new topographics that make human imprints on the land more salient would have more of an impact. But I think that's also pretty contextual. The photos aren't beautiful. They'd be easy to scroll by on Instagram without giving thought to the larger implications. So what about the photos that most of us take of people among the outdoors, like me, Dan, and the girls on my trek trying to take selfies on a disposable camera? Maybe, just maybe, that's actually the ticket. Pictures of ourselves usually garner the most engagement on social media, and they do send a message that this is a public land that's meaningful in my life, and that makes protecting it valuable. Through media, as Baudrillard puts it, the charm to be found in the theater of social relations is all transferred outward into the advertising of life and lifestyles. Yes, my Instagram may be a sort of misrepresentational theater of my misrepresented time, but it advertises the value of time in the outdoors, and I think I'm okay with that. In Adams' introduction to his book, My Camera in the National Parks, he writes, The grandeurs and intimacies of nature as presented here will, I hope, 
encourage the spectator to seek for himself the inexhaustible sources of beauty in the natural world about him. Adams is hopeful that his pictures will encourage us all to go seek personal experiences in the outdoors, and that those experiences will make us want to join the efforts to preserve our natural spaces. I think nowadays we really do use Instagram for that kind of purpose. Personally, a lot of the places I've been inspired to go are places I've first seen on social media. Unfortunately, it would be naive not to view this as a double-edged sword. Pulling more people into a landscape than it can handle only serves to accelerate its degradation. It gets back to the ideas of permits and limiting access from our last episode as perhaps a necessary evil. Geotagging has proven especially detrimental to certain areas that were once just locally known secrets. The ability to post exact location coordinates makes it easy for tourists to find scenic locations they may otherwise not have known about. This is what happened at Horseshoe Bend over the past 10 years. It went from a relatively unvisited spot overlooking an impressive view over the Colorado River to a place flooded with people and without the proper infrastructure for parking, bathrooms, and fencing, making it dangerous for unprepared visitors and promoting rapid erosion of the land. In the past 10 years, it's gone from a spot accessed by an indiscriminate dirt road to a fenced-in lookout point with a hefty entrance fee. Current Leave No Trace guidelines have been updated to discourage geotagging and prevent the same thing from happening to other pristine areas. So, I still haven't developed my film. However, after working on this episode, I was inspired to make it happen. I found a community darkroom that even offers introductory classes and signed up for the next session. Unfortunately, coronavirus has put that on hold, but in time, I look forward to sharing some of the results when the darkroom is able to reopen. I also got inspired to dip my toes into using Instagram to promote environmentalism. I'm much less brash than Adams and prefer to refrain from posting any inflammatory political content on my social media. However, while I was voting in the Michigan primaries a few weeks ago, I couldn't help but take a small step I think Adams would be proud of. I pulled out my phone in the voting booth and snapped a picture of one of the local proposals on the ballot, the one for increasing millage for local parks and my beloved Lansing River Trail. I decked it out with voting gifts, wrote a message to my friends about the importance of voting in local elections, and posted it on my Instagram story. Even though I haven't gotten any personal photos printed as a result of this episode, I did decide to buy a poster of Ansel Adams' photograph called Moonrise and hang it up in my room. It's a photograph of the small town of Hernandez, New Mexico, nestled among the arroyo in the foreground, in front of a backdrop of mountains and dramatic clouds, with a white moon rising in a black sky. It's a tiny town of a few adobe houses, and one of the most striking features are the tiny, detailed white crosses dotting the cemetery in front of the town, glowing white. Moonrise is actually one of Adam's most famous photographs, and um, at the time, an original print of it set a record for the most expensive photograph ever sold, and Adams hadn't even died yet. I think it's kind of ironic that this is what he's so well known for. Part of the thing I love about this photo is the serendipitous story of its creation. Adams was driving outside of town, 
noticed the exquisite lighting and scene, stopped, set up his equipment as quickly as he could, guessing on the settings because he couldn't find his light meter, snapped one photo, and before he had the chance to make adjustments, the sun went down and the magic was over. Turned out he didn't need another shot. But the real thing that's ironic is that it's not the classic culture-excluded Ansel Adams photograph. It says very clearly that humans are here, living and dying among this grand landscape. And there's an interaction between culture and wild backdrop that together seems to me to create something more impressive and meaningful than either culture or nature would be alone. I think we have this idea that culture, evidence of humanity, dilutes our experiences of being in the wilderness. But it's impossible to separate wilderness from our own experiences within it, and the way we interact in it is going to be influenced by culture, because it is an anecdote. But it's impossible to separate wilderness from our own experiences within it, and the way we interact in it is going to be influenced by culture, because it is an anecdote to culture and real life. So, yeah, photos of pristine landscapes, they may misrepresent reality. But the reality is, we are there. We belong among those backdrops, and we are changed in our views because of those backdrops. Part of the wilderness idea is that there would be no wilderness if there were not culture and civilization. And since we are there among a dynamic, ever-changing landscape, it's worth taking those extra moments to pay attention. So go ahead. Try to capture your mood in the lighting on the hills. Snap that juxtaposition of the street sign and mountains. Or step in front of the camera. Hold on to the time you have away from it all. And maybe don't be afraid to share it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature's Narrative. I hope you enjoyed it and you're inspired to share it with friends and family. Let us know what you think of the show by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was written and produced by me, Emily Stefke. Huge thanks to Dan Singer for allowing me to interview him, for his wonderful insights, and for gifting me with my first film camera. Our music was composed and performed by my talented sister, Madeline Stefke. Thanks also to Madeline for performing the role of Ansel Adams in this episode. And of course, thanks to Dr. Kristen Mahoney in the English department at Michigan State University for mentoring me through the process of creating this show. You can find more information about the books and photographs I discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening.